This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. You know, this guy flies pretty close to the sun in a lot of ways, and there's certainly been a lot of legal questions about his behavior over the years, and there's going to be more questions. So I don't necessarily want to downplay that. It's just that, you know, I think if you're going to take this step against uh, against the former president and someone who's running for office, that maybe you'd want to feel more confident in the case. Although, you know, there are probably lots of things about the case and the strength and or weakness of the, the argument that the Manhattan DA has here that we don't necessarily know about yet. So we just have to wait for it to unfold, but it's also not going to unfold anytime soon. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. We have a lot to discuss this week, Kyle. Uh, the indictment of Donald J. Trump, a historic first against a sitting or former president, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election, and a new analysis of the voting trajectories of eastern states of Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Uh, Why don't we start with the indictment of Donald Trump? Uh, That's the people of the state of New York against Trump. It's indictment number 71543-23, just to be completely accurate here. And this week, the president was charged with 34 counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. These are all class E felonies, which is the lowest category of felony offense in New York. They carry a maximum prison sentence of four years each. Um, I just want to share briefly what, what Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg said in a news conference after the arraignment. Um, Under New York state law, it is a felony offense to falsify business records with the intent to defraud, intent to conceal, or another crime. That's going to be key here. This is exactly what the case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State. No matter who you are, we cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. President Trump, so he did not give a press conference or speak with reporters before the arraignment. Uh, He did uh, fly back to Florida and give remarks at Mar-a-Lago afterwards. So we can talk a little bit about that. I think it's notable that we have not really seen Republicans, um, certainly not any of the others, other candidates who might be running for the election, um, other than Asa Hutchinson, really speak out um, against the president about this. Um, but maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, the political fallout. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- this does not necessarily seem like an open and shut case. And a lot of legal commentators have talked about how it is maybe kind of novel to essentially kind of try to get, try to tie together what seem to be sort of like state violations versus federal violations. And, you know, in order to prove that this was a, or to, to basically get the jury to, to, to agree that this was a, was a felony, you have to sort of argue that, that, uh, um, these, uh, uh, you know, false statements were sort of made in service of Trump's political career and, and violated campaign finance, federal campaign finance law. And so it's, to me, it's, it's kind of complicated, and you know you do have these other legal matters hanging out there about Trump, um, be it uh, you know election interference in, in Georgia or um, the you know special counsel Jack Smith's um, investigation, both of the events of January sixth and what led up to it, and also the uh, um, uh, Trump's uh, having classified documents at, at, at Mar-a-Lago. To me, those are sort of more serious, I guess, and, and, and maybe important than what happened in New York. And you know you do have even some people. 
who I would sort of think of as maybe like sort of left of center commentators who, who sort of follow this stuff. I guess I think of uh, Rick Hassan at UCLA, who I, I really mm-hmm. like a lot. Yes. And he's, he, you know, he was, he was kind of skeptical of this indictment. And again, he's, he's, he's not the only one, but, um, I've really liked his, I've just respected his commentary a lot over, over the years. So it does not seem like kind of like an open and shut case. And so you even, and you even have some um, Republicans who are not friends of the president, like Mitt Romney, uh, Senator from Utah and the former um, 2012 nominee. Um, you know, he, he said, Hey, you know, Trump shouldn't be president again, but I think that this indictment, you know, maybe went too far, was politicized. So, um, you know, I think it's been, it's been kind of easy in some ways for Republicans to, close ranks around Trump on this. Um, and, and many of them did so and certainly in, in, um, stronger language and, and, uh, than, than Mitt Romney did for, for certain. Um, but I also think that this is maybe just the, the first step of what may be an ongoing process. And look, I mean, I think the next, um, the next event in this case isn't until December. So it's possible that, you know, for all of the coverage of this, that maybe it just sort of goes on the back burner a little bit. And we see if any of these other, um, legal cases lead to indictments, uh, you know, down the, down the road for Trump. You know, one thing to note is that this, as you said, this will be a very long process and it could be that, you know, he's not, there may not be a verdict until the next election has passed. And so there is the potential that he could be a sitting president in which um, uh, the decision is made. You know, one, one just little detail, I think I saw this on Twitter. I'd I'd love to attribute it to to the person I saw it from, but, um, but it basically like, like, how would you even deal with a a president um, or a former president actually being in jail because he would still need Secret Service protection based on the law. I mean, it's just a very strange situation. And look, I mean, I, I'm you know, I spent the, my first answer here. I was sort of kind of soft pedaling these you know these charges against Trump a little bit. And again, I do think that there are some doubts about it. But you know, it's also pretty clear that Trump has, um, as someone who's been in the public eye for decades and decades, and obviously has been a political figure for several years. You know, this guy flies pretty cl- close to the sun in a lot of ways, and you know, he, see, I think he's, um, you know, he, he's. There's certainly been a lot of legal questions about his behavior over the years, and there's going to be more questions. So I don't necessarily want to downplay that. It's just that, um, you know, I think if you're going to take this step against uh, against the former president and someone who's running for office, that. Um, I, I guess it would, you know, you, maybe you'd want to feel more confident in the case. Although, you know, there are probably lots of things about the case and the strength and/or weakness of the the argument that the Manhattan DA has here that we don't necessarily know about yet. So we just have to wait for it to unfold. But it's also not going to unfold anytime soon. So I also went through and kind of dug up all the polls I could find um, on on the indictment, and you know. Predictably, it's it's playing out in the public as we might expect, um, falling along, uh, you know, attitudes falling along party lines. Ninety four percent of Democrats, according to a CNN poll released before before uh, the arraignment this week, uh, approved of the de- of the decision to indict Trump. While seventy nine percent seventy nine percent of Republicans disapproved, um, and still the majority, you know, as you noted earlier, majority of Americans still think that politics are playing a role. Similarly, forty seven percent of Americans in an ABC Ipsos poll, including seventy nine percent of Republicans and forty eight percent of Independents, only sixteen percent of Democrats think that the charges are politically motivated. A Quinnipiac University poll, a pretty well respected poll, found that majority of Americans think the accusations are either very serious or somewhat serious. Um, though, again, 93% of Republicans and 70% of 
of independence thought the indictment was motivated by politics. And then an NPR, P- uh, PBS, NewsHour, you know, just going down the list here, plurality of Americans think that he'd done something legal, but believe the investigations um, uh, are politicized. And then there was a poll that was released by Yahoo News and YouGov that was taken immediately after the indictment that actually found a surge in support for Trump with 57% of respondents saying they would vote for the president over Ron DeSantis, his overall perceived rival. Um, and DeSantis drew just 31% in that poll. Again, it's, you know, we're just, we just see this as another example of the way in which President Trump is polarizing and how we're dealing with him is is polarizing. Yeah, and this is why I also, I also think it's important to see where some of these other investigations end up going because, you know, like, I, so just as, a, as an aside, I've been reading uh, uh, Garrett Graff, um, his new book on Watergate, or it came out last year, it just came out in paperback. And, you know, over the course of a couple of years, there was just this weight of all sorts of stuff that eventually did in, you know, Richard Nixon as the, as the sitting president. And it wasn't, you know, we call it Watergate, but there was all sorts of other, um, you know, illegal activity going on, um, you know, and tax problems with Nixon and all sorts of other things. And, you know, so it might be that maybe this particular indictment is not necessarily the thing that might under, you know, submarine Trump's chances of being the nominee or force him to, to, to not run or something. But maybe the weight of all these other things combined together would have some sort of effect. But I will also admit to being personally a little jaded on, um, sort of predictions of Trump's demise just because we've seen it so many times and it hasn't necessarily happened. Although, of course, he did lose in 2020. So you can't necessarily say, oh, well, he's never paid any sort of price for his um, for his misbehavior or misdeeds, because I think if he had uh, um, behaved in a different manner as he was president, he very well may have won re-election. So, um, you know, the, the, he's not necessarily always kind of like Teflon Don, um, but when there are individual little individual events that come up that seem very threatening to him, you know, it's it, it just it's sometimes just or oftentimes just doesn't doesn't necessarily um, work out. But that's why I would just, you know, I, as, as sort of important historically of a moment as this was this past week, um, I I see it as sort of the beginning of the story and not really the, the, the end point, at least in terms of Trump's potential um, legal travails. And certainly, as you, as you noted in the polls, there has been sort of a, a short-term bump for Trump. I mean, he already was leading um, in the Republican primary, but um, you know, I don't think that, that the primaries fully engaged. We're months away from the voting. You know, over the course of the next many months until early next year when the primary starts, you know, there are, all these are, the other Republican candidates are going to have to figure out ways to try to persuade Republican voters that um, that they shouldn't go with Trump. And maybe the legal tr- problems are part of that, but um, certainly they're not making those arguments against Trump right now. I think another important thing to note is, you know, that it really is going to take elites in the party um, to think about how they they handle it. And there's, you know, there's been, there was a really good Politico piece in February, I believe, um, in which it discussed sort of how elites, Republican elites are discussing what to do behind closed doors, but not saying it out loud. Um, and anecdotally, anecdotally, in some discussions I've had with Republicans, that's, that's also the case. But, you know, it doesn't, it, it seems like, the, you know, any sort of real, plan to think about how to continue to bring along the constituency that 
Trump brought with him to the party um, and has or and, and has engaged, um, you know, how to continue to bring them along um, while moving beyond the candidate himself. There just doesn't seem to be a clear plan for that yet. And that, it seems like that's what it's really going to take. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really been a, a, an enduring story of Trump's time as the essentially the head of the or the, the, the leader of the Republican Party, which you can arguably dates back to 2015, at least in terms of who the, the, the sort of voting public in the GOP wanted the leader of the party to be that, you know, there are all these private concerns about Trump from Republicans. Republicans, but um, when those things are expressed pro- publicly, usually the, the the person saying those things end up, ends up paying some sort of price for that um, on the Republican side, as we saw with the you know some House members who voted for Trump's impeachment, either either uh, retiring or, or losing their primaries, and um, you know some other figures in the party becoming ostracized. And you know part of the challenge too is that for all of the um, the discussion among elites in the party. Uh, I think that they feel constrained not only by by Trump himself and what he might say about them, but also by their own voters who um, it seems like the rank and file are generally in their heart of hearts sort of more supportive of Trump than, than the, the party elites are. So it's just, it's just, it continues to be this sort of problem for the party because I think if you're a Republican, you, you really could look at the 2022 midterm and the 2020 election and what Trump's public standing is now and think, boy, we'd have a better chance in 2024 if we don't nominate this guy, which I've I I think I basically agree with, although that's not to say that Trump couldn't win again in 2024 if he's the nominee. Um, but there's just all this pressure on them, both from Trump himself and also from rank and file voters, at least a fair number of them, um, you know, pressuring them to to sort of not you know to, to stand by uh, by Trump's side. So we'll see. I mean, you know, the the um, the primary you know it unfolds over the course of a really long time. Just because Trump is leading now does not necessarily mean he's he's guaranteed to be the nominee. And, you know, it seems like there are probably more dominoes to fall here, um, uh, legally speaking. Well, let's turn to Wisconsin, where Judge Janet Protasiewicz defeated her defeated former state Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly in what became a highly contested um, all eyes of the nation watching uh, election contest. It was also very expensive at impact tracked twenty eight and a half million um, on what is on what has become the most expensive Supreme Court election they have tracked. Um, the primary had about ten million alone. Um, issue groups made up 92% of spending on the Republican side in this election, while Protasiewicz made up about 78% of her her as a candidate, made up about 78% of the overall Democratic spending. Uh, Our colleague, uh, Miles Coleman, and you have a new crystal ball analysis of that election and what turnout was like. Um, It was slightly down from the 2016 election, but it did rise in 10 counties. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what turnout looked like and uh, what Judge Protasiewicz's election coalition looked like. Yeah, um, you know, it was it was very robust turnout. Given that sometimes these court races will coincide with uh, presidential primaries, and so that helped drive turnout in both uh, 2016 and 2020. Um, but you know, what you, what you're seeing in Wisconsin is that um, you know the the big Democratic vote centers really came through in big ways for um, for Pro which in this election, uh, Milwaukee County, where turnout can sometimes lag. It, it it you know turnout was not necessarily great, but it seems like Republican turnout in that particular county was particularly poor. And as Miles documented in his piece, um, uh, you know, it used to be that, you know, the city of Milwaukee, of course, is, is very, very democratic and has been for a very long time. But a lot of the suburbs within Milwaukee County have been 
historically more Republican, but um, Protosewicz actually won every single piece of Milwaukee County. Um, uh, and also the typical Republican advantage in the so-called WOW counties, the three um, uh, suburban counties that that the highly populated suburban counties that ring um, Milwaukee County and are historically pretty Republican. You know, Republican turnout, Republican performance was just not as strong in those places as they've been in the past. You also have Dane County, where Madison is, uh, the University of Wisconsin, just had awesome turnout and awesome Democratic performance. Um, but really, you can go across the state. I mean, Pro Se, which won by it was like a, eleven points. So uh, you know, she, you could really point to strong showings for her all over the, all over the state. Um, I don't necessarily think it's predictive of, of anything necessarily for 2024. Um, but it was a, you know, it's a pretty high stakes election. They're potentially redistricting implications, implications for the future of reproductive rights in Wisconsin. Um, and this was a, you know, this was certainly a landmark, um, win for, uh, you know, for Democrats, uh, in that, uh, in that state. And, you know, this was a, you know these these Supreme Court elections. I think even though it's a it's a ostensibly or technically nonpartisan race, um, it very much was decided on partisan lines. And um, you know, you particularly had you know Prosewich being pretty outward about about her supporting various uh, you know liberal um, uh, ag- agenda items. And uh, but you know it's also a state where you have a pretty heavily gerrymandered state legislature in favor of Republicans. Um, you know in some in some other states, state courts have acted as sort of a, a check on redistricting. Well, there are a lot of Hoops to jump through on that, as I went through in the crystal ball this week. Um, but you know, so so, but uh, this is a this is a pretty big moment, I think, uh, in what is one of the I don't know five or six most competitive states in the country at the presidential level. One of the things I've also been thinking about is, you know, to what extent does this set a new norm or a new precedent for how judges? who uh, in states where there are uh, elections for justices, state Supreme Court justices, you know, to what extent has the campaigning in this election and the spending, uh, to what extent is it going to affect other elections in other states, particularly as we move on into 2024? I mean, look, I mean, I think that that in states where you elect justices, I mean, um, you know, you, it, it, I think that there was some there's sometimes this sort of like veneer of nonpartisanship on in these races. And again, this was technically a nonpartisan race, even though I think everybody who's following it knew the sort of effective party affiliations of the candidates. And um and you know, then then you sort of have to have to ask yourself, like, is it is it a is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Otherwise, you know, or or, or indifferent in terms of, you know, how quote unquote political should the judges be? You know, on one hand, I guess you could say, well, judges should be sort of different and more, you know, uh, removed from partisan politics. But on the other hand, um, you know, maybe it's a good thing that judges are making clear how they view things because that gives the public a better sense as to what they're actually voting for if it's on the ballot. You know, and, and some people say, oh, well, you should just have you know, an appointment process for judges too, like we do at the federal level, although those judicial appointments have become um highly politicized themselves, uh, as we, you know, as we, I think we've seen, um, you know, in, in, with, with Trump's Supreme Court appointments and, and Supreme Court appointments, uh, in, in the past as well. So, um, you know, is it, at a certain point, are we just sort of deluding ourselves that, oh, well, judges should be removed from partisan politics, but like, are they, have they ever been, um, you know, again, I, I, I don't necessarily the answer to these questions, but I think that there are things we should think about as we, uh, talk about, uh, you know, these, these court, these court races and these court elections. Well, one more topic to cover today, but it's a big one. <laughs> um, you continued your analysis of uh, the bigger counties and states versus uh, the less populated counties and states 
states, this time focusing on on those states that uh, relate to correlate with James Brown's night train. (laughs) 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 I'll have to see what the copyright issues are on on me uh, being able to play a little bit of a clip of that song for the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Uh, It would would be a service to the listeners if you could play it. (laughs) I've always loved that song and I heard it. I really heard it again this weekend. I was like, oh, I can. This will give me a way to tie these states together because otherwise, you know, I did did the Midwest last week and the Midwest is like, you know, there are some other states you could have included in the Midwest, but that's a, you know, specific kind of well-known geographic entity. And, you know, the the sort of eastern states, it's kind of a, a bunch of the Atlantic coast states plus Pennsylvania didn't really have a way to tie it together until I, you know, thought about the song. So, so there you go. But, um, and I, I could have included Pennsylvania last week, but uh, Pennsylvania is really not part of the Midwest. You could argue that maybe it's Western half sort of is, but it's an Eastern state more than a Midwestern state, but or an, yeah, an Apple, it's partially Appalachian. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, that's actually the thing that's part of the reason why it's so politically interesting is that it, it does have kind of pieces of different regions. I mean, that's, you know, historically, the states that are uh, kind of regionally diverse um, or had like kind of different settlement patterns, like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. You know, back a long time ago, the settlement patterns were, you know, kind of kind of Northerners in the North and Southerners in the South, and that kind of had some bearing on the the voting patterns in in those states at, at various times. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the the key battlegrounds are within the states I looked at this week, specifically um, Georgia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, all of which were decided by uh, um, less than a point and a half in the 2020 presidential election. So let's just quickly remind listeners, if you didn't hear the first part of this analysis, uh, you can go back and listen to the podcast episode from last week that covers the Midwestern states. But just as a quick reminder, Kyle, um, can you share how you conducted this analysis? Yeah. So, so I just basically sorted all of the counties in a given state um, from uh, the, the ones that cast the most votes to the ones that cast the fewest votes. And I just kept adding big counties until I got to roughly half the statewide vote. It sort of varies slightly by state. And I didn't want to split any counties to get to exactly 50-50. So it's usually like, you know, 50 and a half to 49 and a half or 51-49 in a given state, et cetera. And I just, you know, just reported how those states voted or those 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 two halves of the state, you know, the top half are the big counties, the, the bottom half are the smaller counties. Um, and I just reported how those pieces vote. And the general trend is that, the bottom half of these states um, generally got it got got redder, or they they were red and got redder in the from from 2012 to 2020. And the big counties, uh, you know, kind of kind of varied based on the state, um, but they are almost always are um, bluer than what the the bottom half counties are. And some of them have sort of zoomed to the left. Um, Minnesota is that way. Chicago or Illinois is that way. Um, Virginia is that way, and uh, Georgia is also that way, and and you could look at all of those states as being either democratic leaning or um, trending uh, democratic. Um, and then you have you know you have a few exceptions. Um, one of them this week is Florida, where the two halves of the state sort of moved in similar ways and got more Republican over the course of the you know 2012 to 2020 period. But what was notable there is actually the top half counties moved a little bit further right from 12 to to 20. Um, than the lower half counties did, even though the, the lower half counties are still overall more Republican. But you could really see the weight of the Republican gains in uh, Miami-Dade, um, Palm Beach, and Broward, all of which are not as blue as they used to be. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thing, there's just sort of broad based Republican realignment in that state, which, you know, it's still competitive, but I think it, we don't really view it as a top tier battleground after what happened. In- Do you have any sense of what's happening in these three big, uh, South Florida counties that is, you know, dr- driving or, or, or helping them trend more towards, uh, the Republican party? Miami-Dade used to be, um, you know, not as democratic as it was in like 2012 and 2016. You know, the the, the Cuban population um, in South Florida is known for being historically conservative and Republican. Um, that group maybe trended more toward Democrats, but then sort of snapped back in um, in 2020. Um, you know, uh, uh, Broward has a pretty significant black population. There has been a little bit of erosion w- with black voters um, for Democrats in. Uh, um, in certain places all over the country, and maybe you're seeing that there. Um, you know, Palm Beach. I kind of, I kind of wonder. I, I haven't looked at it in depth, but um, you know, Palm Beach does have a significant Jewish population. It's it's sort of democratic leaning. Um, actually, kind of like peaked in 2000 when um, you know you had Joe Lieberman on the Democratic ballot um, as a you know as a, a Jewish uh, a VP candidate. So I do wonder if maybe there's something going on. Um, with the, the Jewish vote in Palm Beach, of course, one one sort of overriding thing in Florida is that there's just a lot of, um, you know, it's an older state, um, older voters. Again, this is a broad generalization, but older voters, voters gender, tend to be a little bit more Republican leaning. You do have an influx of a lot of retirees moving to Florida. Um, there's a lot of growth in some of the retirement heavy uh, counties. Really, those are not necessarily the places we think of anyway. Um, as being those sorts of places are not are, are in the bottom half in Florida as opposed to the top half. So there's probably a, a lot of different um, a lot of uh, different things going on there. You know, one other thing about Florida is that um, a lot of the places have been trending really strongly toward Democrats are kind of like highly educated, um, uh, kind of white collar professional hubs. Um, and Florida doesn't really have those places compared to like say Northern Virginia or Metro Atlanta. They're just they're just different. Well, I'm so glad you raised that point about education because one thing I did really quickly before we hopped on here was to go and look at graduation rates of each of these six states. Um, And it's interesting because South Carolina, which is still sort of the the most Republican of all of these states um, and least competitive for Democrats generally, it has the lowest high school graduation rate of all six of those states. Um, with only 81% versus, you know, close to 88% for Virginia. And then I also looked at college graduation rates and Virginia uh, had the highest of the six and South Carolina had the lowest. So we're, you know, we kind of see the, uh, you know, kind of see that question about education rates, even showing up in high school and college graduation. Yeah. You know, I never, I actually hadn't thought about the high school rates, you know, four-year college attainment has become such an important indicator for um, political trends. And, you know, that used to be kind of more of a Republican leaning group, particularly, you know, amongst white voters. And um, that, that group has, has moved toward the Democrats while the, um, uh, you know, a lot of folks who, who don't have four-year degrees, you know, trended more toward more toward Republicans in, in recent years. Um, but yeah, I do think education levels a, a, a a big part of it. And again, you can really see that particularly in some places, uh, you know, suburban places that have really zoomed toward the Democrats. And, and again, I point to in this particular group of county in, in, of states, you know, Northern Virginia, Metro Atlanta, um, you could lump, uh, you know, uh, uh, Charlotte and Raleigh Durham in with that. Um, Philadelphia and its suburban counties are also a piece of that. Um, you know, Florida, again, is just it's just a little bit different um, in terms of its demographics than 
um, than some some of these other states. And I think it shows just how in the it just shows in in um, how the, the the voting patterns in that state have uh, have have developed. You know, one other thing I wanted to mention was just I thought that was just kind of interesting. Now Georgia was decided by. Um, a little over two tenths of a percentage point for president in 2020. So of course it was really close. Um, but when you do this, you know, top half versus bottom half analysis, um, the 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 top half voted for Biden by 25.7 points. The bottom half voted for Trump by 25.7 points. So it just so happened that um, there was this basically they're, they're exact opposites. The reason that Biden slightly won, won the state was that the the top half has just a little bit more population than the bottom half in that state. And if you go back to 2012, you find that the bottom half was basically the same, but that the Democratic margin for Obama in the top half was only about 10 points. So the story there is just that the you know the the populous counties and that's mostly Atlanta um, just zoomed toward the Democrats while the bottom half didn't move at all and. If I was a Democrat, I would think, hey, that's encouraging about the future because those trends might continue. Although, um, you know, who knows um, how these things might might uh, you know change and sort themselves out over time. Another thing that I thought was interesting was in North Carolina and some of the changes that are happening at uh, the lower levels of the state. Um, Democrats are are getting bigger margins in major urban areas, but losing ground uh, elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit more about what's happening in North Carolina? You know, again, you've got pretty, pretty strong, good democratic trends in, you know, Charlotte and Raleigh, Durham and, and uh, um, the, the, uh, the so-called uh, uh, triad, which is like Greensboro, uh, Winston-Salem and, and High Point sort of north of Charlotte and west of, west of Raleigh, Durham. Um, but, you know, there are real positive Republican trends, um, particularly in sort of the, um, some of the uh, uh, kind of northeastern part of the state. A lot of those, a number of those counties have pretty significant um, kind of black rural populations, but, you know, Democratic performance there, I think, kind of got juiced in the Obama years and, 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 and fell off to some degree um, post Obama. Uh, you also have a number of, uh, you know, decently populated kind of uh, medium, smaller town places uh, between Charlotte uh, and Fayetteville where uh, Democratic performance has fallen off. And um, so there are, you know, there are these competing trends in North Carolina. But we, we've sort of been waiting for that state to sort of move the way that like Virginia and Georgia have. Um, and, you know, it's just been sort of persistently a little bit more right of center. I mean, again, it, it's, it, it votes somewhat similar or fairly closely to Georgia, but it just isn't it just hasn't made the kind of move that, that Georgia has made. Um, because, you know, 10 years ago, you would have thought of Georgia as being clearly more Republican than North Carolina, which it was, but now Georgia has sort of moved more toward the Democrats, whereas North Carolina has sort of stood still um, relative to the nation, uh, even though there's a whole lot of changes going on, you know, underneath the hood in, in, in North Carolina at the, you know, at the, at the, the county level. Um, and the, the, you know, the changes, you could find positive changes for both sides and just has kept the state in this sort of um, uh, stasis kind of persistently, um, uh, right of center. You know, I will say that I think if you look at like what should you know what what's the what's the the state that Trump won that Democrats should heavily most heavily target in um, in twenty twenty four. I think North Carolina is the answer. I mean, it was Trump's um, most closely you know closely contested victory in twenty uh, in twenty twenty. Um, but I think in the past you would have thought Florida, but I think that the trends in North Carolina are, are, are a little bit more a little bit better for Democrats than they are um, in, uh, in 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 Florida. Well, as always, Kyle, thank you so much for sharing your analysis this week, and we look forward to next week. Thanks, Kara. 
Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time, 